Last, uh, last week we saw that um, John the Baptist, who is his major figure in the Gospels, uh, that alarmingly uh, and shockingly, if you have been following the Gospel of Matthew, he actually doubts that Jesus is the Messiah. And um, this is the cousin of Jesus, John the Baptist. This is the forerunner of the Messiah, the one who's supposed to prepare the way for him, and yet we find him doubting. He actually asks, are you really the Messiah, or should I be looking for someone else? So we talked about how um, you know, painful that would be for Jesus to experience that. And not only that, but we see a little bit later on that all of his Jewish brothers and sisters pretty much doubt him as well, not just John. And he actually says, uh, you know, will this generation ever stop doubting me? Will they ever trust me? And will they ever believe that I am who I say that I am. I am the way my father sees me. And so really he has every reason to be frustrated and angry even. Um, but instead of getting mad, we see here that at the very time that he really should have been most discouraged, that he prays and he gives thanks. He doesn't just pray, but he gives thanks. And it says in verse 25, at that time, which is important, because at that time was a time that everybody was doubting him, uh, including these entire cities of Bethsaida and Chorazin. Um, and at that time, Jesus did not declare, I am so frustrated with him. I can't believe this is happening. Everything is going wrong. My ministry is failing. He said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. So he just declares this statement of, God is my Father, and God is the Lord of heaven and earth. In spite of everything that's happening, that is the reality. Um, that is the truth about life. And, you know, when people leave the church here, and when friends of mine uh, give up on their faith, lose their faith, as has happened, um, I tend to lose heart. When I read, as I read this week, that 26% of Americans are now involved in church, and that number is declining among young people, that 60% of millennials say that Christianity is judgmental, um, my first response is not to give thanks to God that he is uh, the Father and the Lord of heaven and earth. I tend to get discouraged. But Jesus gets bold, and he confidently asserts basically two things here that number one god is sovereign it's a word we use theological term just meaning that he is lord of heaven and earth that he is in control of all things that he reigns and number two that god is gracious because he's a father and his will is gracious as jesus says here so i want to look at god's sovereignty and his grace um, which is actually the name of a a denomination sovereign grace ministries is the name of that denomination and sovereign grace is a really beautiful way of describing what salvation is Uh, Salvation is all from the Lord. It is all of the Lord. It is nothing to do with us. And so it is sovereign and entirely gracious. And I think if it's not sovereign, it's not entirely gracious. If it has anything to do with me, it's not entirely sovereign or gracious. And this is not in good times. Remember, this is in the time where you feel like a tidal wave of spiritual frustration or dryness or loneliness, failing ministry, broken dreams, collapsing hopes. That's when the sovereign grace of God really matters. That's when it matters. So that's what I want to look at. Sovereignty and grace. So first of all, verse 25. You have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. That's a hard saying. In the face of rejection, Jesus says, uh, God, you are in total control. 
of who and who does not believe. In other words, it is not up to the whims of humanity um, whether my kingdom grows or not, but that is entirely in the hands of, of God, of the Father. And in John 6, this kind of thing happens again. Uh, in the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John, the people of Nazareth, who Jesus grew up with, uh, they're looking at him claiming these things, and they say, uh, this, this is just little Jesus, the son of Joseph the carpenter, whose mother and father we know. How can he say now, I have come down from heaven? So they are questioning him in the same way that we saw here in Matthew. And this is what Jesus says. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's an incredible thing to say in response to that. As they're grumbling, his response is, no one can come to me unless God draws them to me. So again, he's just asserting God's sovereignty, that God is the Lord of heaven and earth. And and Lord of heaven and earth doesn't rule out a whole lot. Uh, Heaven means all things invisible. Earth means all things visible. This is not the sky and the ground. We're talking about everything, the whole universe. And so it's not the Lord of every planet and every star except for planet Earth. It includes planet Earth. And it's also not the Lord of every animal but humans, which we sometimes think, you know, he's the Lord of all that stuff, but not me. And it's also not saying he's the Lord of every single event except for human free choices. He doesn't say that. That includes our free will. He's still the Lord of everything. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. And so if God exists, I would say, if there is any God at all, and sometimes it's hard to believe there is, but if there is any God at all, I would say God has got to be the God of everything. Um, As this author, Francis Spufford, who I quoted, I believe last week, says um, that God must be the God of all stories, the creator and sustainer of all the processes by which life takes its myriad forms. The God who needs nothing and competes with nothing and exists at nothing's expense. Um, God just simply is. When he met Moses, um, Moses says, who are you? What what, What is your name? And God's response is Yahweh, which means I am that I am. I simply am. I exist. And I need no other thing to cause me to exist. In Psalm 115, uh, David says, God is in the heavens. And God does whatever he pleases. Nothing can stay his hand. And then in Ephesians 1.11, we're talking about now a thousand years later, Paul, another Jewish writer, says that God works out all things in accordance with the counsel of his will. So it's like there's a council, God is speaking to God, and they make this council, and then they work out everything in conformity with the counsel of their will. And again, this is what theologians call sovereignty, the sovereignty of God. It's also a political term, but it's a theological term. And it just simply means God controls everything. And frankly, you know, frankly, if you are hearing what I'm saying, this is offensive. This is offensive to human freedom. And if you kind of have your back up right now, um, so do I. You know, I I have a hard time with sovereignty. Um, I want to define my own reality. I want to define God the way I want God to be. Or not be, and I want to say this is what God should be like and should not be like. And the, again, the reason he's he's offensive in being sovereign is because I want to be sovereign. And you know, the opponents that rejected Jesus were saying, "I don't think, I don't think he should be able to pronounce forgiveness the way he's pronouncing forgiveness. I don't like that about Jesus." And they were saying, "I don't think he should be eating with these tax collectors and these sinners. I don't really like that about Jesus." And then they were saying, "I don't think that we should have to turn the other cheek. I don't think we should have to be foreign spirit." And on and on and on. 
And Jesus says that, that those people are wise and understanding. And he puts that in quotes. That's ironic. Okay, in verse 25, when he says you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding, he's not talking about smart people or educated people. So he's not, he's not saying, uh, I'm glad you've hidden these things from people who read a lot or they have a high IQ. That's not what he's saying. He's saying um, wise and understanding in quotes, ironically, like they think they are, but they're not really. So f- Proverbs 16.2 says all the ways of a human being are pure in his own eyes. In the time of the judges, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is what it means to be wise and understanding, is to think that basically uh, your moral instincts and your spiritual intuitions are all entirely right, or at least mostly so, and that you can judge God against your yardstick of what is morally and spiritually right. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who was like the prophet of America, he says that uh, self-trust is the secret of success. And um, the Bible says, no, if you lean on your own understanding, uh, you're going to be destroyed by that. You need, you need to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And leaning on your own understanding is trusting your own intuitions that they are correct. In opposition to Ralph Waldo Emerson and so much of what Americans believe, this idea of trusting yourself, trusting your instincts. You know, people sometimes say, I could never believe in a God who allows so much suffering. Um, I could never believe in a God who sends people to hell. I could never believe in a God who claims to be the only way to salvation. And I think, not that I have no sympathy for those questions, but I I do wonder, like, where did you find the yardstick um, that, you know, the cosmic yardstick or the, the, the yardstick of divinities that you hold up and then you take these deities and you measure them against your yardstick of what is right and wrong and true and false about God. You know, it's kind of like saying, um, I, I could never believe in a universe that started with a Big Bang. That just doesn't seem right to me. I could never believe in a planet where there's evolution. It just doesn't sit well with me. Or I, I could never believe in wave-particle duality that, you know, you have both, light is both a photon and electromagnetic radiation. I just can't believe in that kind of thing. And it's like, it doesn't matter what you could or could not believe in. That's just reality. That's just what reality is like. And sometimes our failure to imagine things says a lot more about us than reality. I'm reading a book right now where the author says, um, a deity who micromanages the cosmos and causes all events in it to happen, which is what I just said is what God is, sovereign, the Lord of heaven and earth, a deity who micromanages the cosmos and calls all events to happen would be an immoral scumbag considering the nature of many of those events. I actually really like this book, but um, I also struggle with God's sovereignty. Like I said, I struggle with this. I don't claim to be completely at ease with the idea, especially given the prevalence of suffering. I mean, we all struggle with that. But I, I, at some point, I think I at least check myself And I say, you know, I am 48 years old. Um, I am a 21st century American. I've got to check my kind of cultural context here. Um, I've read, you know, maybe a couple hundred books in my life. Gotten through maybe half of those entirely. Um, I've spent about 12 months of my entire life outside of my country. And even in those settings, I was mostly with kind of Western people. And really in my entire life, I've had meaningful interactions with about 50 people, like really deep, multiple interactions about reality with about 50 people. And those people are very similar to me. And I would hazard to guess you're about like that. 
Maybe not that age, but you're probably in that similar. And so then I say, I, I hesitate to reject um, millennia of Jewish wisdom on the basis of my brain, right? On the basis of what I have experienced in my life and what I've read. And I, and I hesitate to reject 2,000 years of church history, which have, which have asserted the sovereignty of God. And I, I hesitate even more to reject the recorded words of Jesus, that no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. That's verse 27. Um, anyone who the, cho- the Son chooses to reveal him. I, that's hard. It's very hard. I don't understand that. But it's just right there. And I believe it's spoken by someone who's a lot smarter than I am, who knew a lot more than I knew. And it's not, it's not Paul, right? We, people sometimes say, I don't like Paul. Paul teaches all that stuff about sovereignty. I like Jesus. You know, he just talks about the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. But no, actually, Jesus says in John six thirty seven, all that the Father gives me will come to me. He says in John ten seven, I give them eternal life. I give them eternal life sovereignly and they will never perish because I give it to them and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He says in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Now, in all of that, I know we have free will. I'm not denying that. But still, over that free will, over everything stands this majestic, sovereign God, the Lord of heaven and earth. And I hear people say, well, that's what Jesus said there cannot be true because that is completely unfair. And again, this is where, as Americans, where fairness is like the highest value almost, or equality is the highest value. We just have to be really careful about saying that what we think about those things is entirely right. Um, since I was a child, I have been obsessed with fairness. And I know a lot of children are, but I was, I was really into fairness in a way that was pretty deep. And I would say it's, it's not fair that Jonathan, my older brother, that he gets to go to sleep later than me. That's not fair. And it's not fair that Peter, my younger brother, gets to watch way more TV than me. That's not fair at all. And I would complain to my parents. Um, and my parents were very patient. They didn't say anything. But they could have said, you know, Jonathan is two years older than you. So that actually makes a difference in terms of when you go to sleep. And then Peter does watch more TV than you. But you go to your friend's house and play computer games all day long. So that, that should factor into the equation, too. They didn't say those things. But the reality is, you know, my fairness... As a child, and my sense of that now are not all that different. They're really not all that different. And so for me to try to judge the Lord Jesus on what he said because of what I think is fair or not fair just doesn't make a lot of sense. So my first point is, let's assume the universe is more complicated than we think it is. Let's assume Jesus knows more than we do and kind of check our moral outrage and certainties about things he says and 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 say that God is sovereign and and not you and not me and rather than chafing at that and biting our nails and twirling our hair we should take a deep breath and uh, open up our palms and say you know this is good news this is really good news that the universe is not out of control even with all the suffering and pain the universe is not out of control because, and this is the thing that I, I don't think I could believe in sovereignty without this point, but the second point is that this, this God who claims to be sovereign also says that he is gracious, that he's entirely gracious. We might not be able to see that. Um, that might not play out in our lives the way we think it would, but it's, it's what he says, that he's entirely gracious, that he's gentle and lowly of heart. 
I mean, when you combine that, so this is now point two, okay, about God being gracious. But if you, when, you combine, when you combine the fact in verse 29 that he says he is gentle and lowly of heart, with the fact that in verse 27 he says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. It doesn't look like they're being handed over because he's being rejected right now. But what he's saying is that my Father is Lord of heaven and earth, and he has handed over to me all things so that I am ruling with him. And I am humble and meek and lowly, gentle. There are a lot of translations for that. But the conclusion there is that the ruler of the universe is humble and lowly of heart and meek and, and gentle. And I know it's really weird that um, someone could say that basically I rule the world and I am humble. I mean, there have been people out there in history who have claimed to rule the world, like a David Koresh or Jim Jones. They thought they were God. Those people are crazy, and, and they're megalomaniacs, they're lunatics. There are also people who have said, I'm humble, like the Buddha, um, and he did not think he was God. He knew he was the farthest thing from God. Uh, even, I would say, Muhammad would have said he is not at all Allah. He is the opposite of Allah. He, so people do not claim both of these things except for Jesus. That I am both, it's an amazing thing, I am gentle and lowly of heart in verse 29, and also I am claiming that all things have been handed over to me by my Father. Now we've got to be careful about the word gentle, because gentle doesn't mean that he loved animals. I think he did like animals, but that's not what gentle means. It doesn't mean that he spoke really in whispers, and like in Jesus' movies, he speaks really softly and calmly. And uh, it doesn't mean he, he, he wears like a cardigan like Mr. Rogers. And that's no offense to Mr. Rogers, who was a saint. It's a great movie about him. He really, he's an amazing man. But what gentle means here is more like the opposite of being macho or bravado or boasting. Um, if you've seen Popeye, you know, that character of Bluto, that's the opposite of what he is. He, he is, he is very strong, but his, his strength is very subdued and very quiet and, uh, he, um, he doesn't need to show everyone who he is. He's very gentle. And then lowly, uh, lowly is another word that is probably not the best translation. It doesn't mean that he walked around with his head down. He had really bad posture, like he was stooped over. I don't know if you've seen the emoji of the walking person. You know, that person that's walking and their head is really stooped over. They look kind of like they're lowly of heart. That is not what lowly means here. It means more like free from self. Free from uh, narcissism and vanity. And that is a great person to be sovereign. I mean, aren't you glad that a, a, a lowly, gentle person is ruling the universe and not someone we elected? You know, praise God that, um, that Americans don't get to elect the ruler of the cosmos. The, the, supreme, the supreme leader of all is not someone that we, um, we choose as a nation. And some people say, you know, if I ran the universe, I would never allow this, that, or the other to happen. And I say, I'm glad you don't run the universe. And I don't, I'm glad that I don't run the universe because I'm glad that, that humility runs the universe. That this, this God um, who is claiming to be lowly of heart and gentle also is the one who says, all things have been handed over to me. And I would say, never believe anything about God that you don't see in Jesus. So if, if you in your mind are thinking right now, 
That sovereign God you're describing seems like a monster to me. Just say, no, that couldn't be because he's, that's not what Jesus is like. And so when you, when you think about God, always start with Jesus. And I love that he is not alone in ruling the universe. I mean, there's something about that. They say that female leadership is more relational than male leadership. And that a lot of businesses need that female leadership in their culture. And I love that Jesus does not run the universe alone. That it's not like an ordinary monarchy or a dictatorship. That it's not one person calling the shots here. It's these two people together. And actually, he doesn't mention the Holy Spirit, but there's three. And it says in verse 27 that their relationship is incredibly intense. It's like BFF, you know, best friends forever, but it's like on steroids. Because not only are they best friends, Jesus says in verse 27, no one even knows me except my father. Like Peter and James and John, y'all know me pretty well. I chose you and you are the first people to ever know me. John the Baptist knew me pretty well. Mary, my mom, knew me pretty well. But no one knows me. No one really knows me at all except for my father. And then also, no one knows my father except for me. And so there's, a, there's an intimacy there that is incredible. Sometimes I will say to Margie, you know, no one really knows me but you. And if things are going well, I, I would hope she might say back to me, and no one really knows me but you. And I, I think that that's a beautiful thing about uh, a relationship between two people who know each other and love each other that much, is there's, there's a real sense in which no one knows me but her, and no one knows her but me. But that's not absolutely true. But with Jesus and the, and the Father, it is absolutely true. There's a, new, there's a mutual knowledge between them that is unfathomable. And I've heard one person say that the center of the entire New Testament is not Jesus, but it's the relationship between Jesus and the Father. That is the central core of the entire New Testament. And into that relationship, we are to be brought into the relationship where Jesus and the Father have this mutual knowledge that is untouchable. And part of the reason that it is unfathomable is because it goes so much deeper than our moral intuitions. It is, is so much deeper than fairness. Okay, the relationship between the Father and the Son is not a relationship of fairness. They don't talk about who got more, who got less. There's, it's deeper even than what we would call love because there's no need in it. It's, it's deeper than anything we know of, um, whether it's friendship, children, romantic. It's much different from anything we know as love, in which there's always some kind of need. The relationship between the father and the son is the deepest thing in the universe, and the best word to characterize it is the word grace. In verse 26, he says, uh, For such was your gracious will. I would have called it unfair, but Jesus calls it gracious. You know, he just said, um, and when he makes that statement, um, that uh, basically you have hidden these things from these wise, understanding people and revealed them to little children. And he says, it's not unfair, that's gracious. That's grace. And, and grace means uh, no merit involved. Grace means there's no earning involved. There's no superiority involved. So if, if you have faith... Um, I know a lot of you do have faith. I know you. And if you believe and you know someone who doesn't believe, and I'm sure we all know someone who doesn't believe, and maybe you don't believe, and um, this is really important that the reason you do and the other person does not is not because you're better than that person. And it's a real temptation for Christians to think that. 
Now, we wouldn't say better. We would probably just think, well, I am more spiritually sensitive, or I kind of know myself better. You know, I'm more, maybe I'm more humble. I have more self-awareness, we might say. It's not so much that I'm better than my brother. I've just read a lot more good books than him. Or um, maybe you think I'm just more curious than that person, my roommate, or my mom or dad or my child who don't believe. Um, I've got some kind of in with spiritual reality. You know, I'm just a really thoughtful guy. That's why I believe. Or I'm, I'm enlightened. Or I'm in touch with reality. But grace says no. That's not the reason. It's, the, it's a gift. Faith is entirely a gift. I found out on Friday night, um, much to my horror, that a friend of mine from seminary, um, who I was in many classes with, he was promoted to be the chief editor and president of Christianity Today. And you might not know or care what Christianity Today is, but it's like the leading evangelical magazine. And I was thinking, I, I was better than that guy. I was smarter than that guy. Life is so unfair. How did Tim Dalrymple become that? And, you know, I'm doing nothing with my life. And Jesus says, you know, you're a child. The whole thing is about children and has nothing to do with our intelligence, our achievement. Um, Acts, I love Acts 4.13. I need to read this a lot. Um, it says that, I love how Luke, describing fellow, his fellow friends Peter and John, Luke says that, when the crowd saw that Peter and John were saying these wise things, the crowd was amazed because they said that Peter and John were ordinary and unschooled, illiterate people. And the Greek word is idiotes. And where do you think idiotes translates into English? It, it's idiot. These people are idiots. Uh, uneducated, common, unlearned, ignorant, illiterate, plebeian. Those are different translations for idiotes. So I love the fact that the Early church, people who spread the message were considered idiots by those around them, um, that they were children. And um, Matthew 18.3 says, I tell you the truth, that unless you become like little children, you will never even get into the kingdom of God. And when a child sees the ocean um, for the first time, their mouth just falls, they just agape, they just can't believe what they see. Or when a child first sees an elephant, or a rhino at the zoo, or a zebra, um, they, are, they just put their heads on their hand. They can't believe what they're seeing. They're astounded. They're amazed. They don't start lecturing about the nature of the rhino or the elephant. Um, someone told me the word mansplaining. I did, I'd never heard of that word. But uh, I think it means that a man's tendency to just like explain everything when they encounter something amazing, like Niagara Falls, and then I turn to Margie and start explaining the height of it and the amount of water coming down. That's not what a child does. A child is silenced and amazed and astounded with wonder. And the, the religious teachers had all these things to say about God and Jesus, and um, they always had to have the last word. They were never amazed. But the child is, is the one who is stunned, uh, amazed, surprised by grace. I love this line um, in the Vampire Weekend song. It's called Run. And uh, he's saying, I think, to his girlfriend, I, I don't think your eyes have ever looked surprised. I, and I, I, I always get convicted by that line. I don't think your eyes have ever looked surprised. You know, someone who just thinks that they know everything and are ready for everything. 
And I think this, the people who rejected Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were like the gatekeepers. They thought of themselves as the gatekeepers of Revelation. And at the, at the Bible studies, they would be the ones who always had the last word. They always answered every question. And when they saw Jesus, they, like, they crossed their arms and stood back and they scratched their chin and they kind of narrowed their eyes and they thought, hmm, you know, what is this? But to the blue-collar fishermen like Peter, James, John, to the uh, greedy tax collectors and the, the hard-hearted prostitutes and the lecherous Gentiles, God revealed himself to them and they were blown away by his grace. And they received that faith as a child. And so if you are weary of your own attempts to be sovereign intellectually or mentally, and if you are exhausted by your skepticism and your attempts to figure everything out before believing anything, and I am often in that state, then the invitation here is what my friend's uh, favorite verse in the Bible, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And the rest that he gives is found in this humility, this childlike trust. When you stop trying to study God as an object and let him study you. Someone told me this week that theology is the only subject where what you're studying is not the object of your study, but is, is you are the object of their study. So when you study theology, um, you're studying one who actually uh, is not an object that you can study, but one who studies you and knows you, and who tells you who you are. And you don't tell God who God is. God tells you who you are. And what he says to you at this table that we're about to partake in is that you are loved, um, like the last song we're going to sing, yeah, you are Love beyond um, measure, beyond your doubt and your skepticism that there is grace and love underneath all of those things. I love the, um, the paradox of take my yoke upon you and it will lighten your burden. Um, you, know, you would usually think take, putting a yoke on a cow would actually increase the burden. But Christ says when you come to me, actually it lifts up. Your burden, and it makes you able to take a deep breath and to trust like a child. And so, uh, on the night he was betrayed, 